Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Welcome to Viral, a podcast series looking at the spread of COVID-19 as it continues to affect Ireland and the international world in a growing capacity. On today's podcast, we look at the vital role food will play in combating the coronavirus pandemic and speak to some of the people ensuring the most vulnerable in society are not left behind. People will be aware of significant constraints on testing at a a global level from a supply chain perspective and significant laboratory reagents. So what we've been doing over the last week is prioritising hospitalised patients and healthcare workers and and others in vulnerable groups. So unfortunately there will be an awful lot of people in the community who will have been waiting maybe seven to ten days for a result. Um, That was obviously unanticipated and is unfortunate, but it doesn't really change our plan of ramping up testing over the coming weeks to achieve between 10 and 15,000 tests per day. I suppose the message for those individuals is that the test is really being performed for a population benefit more so than the benefit for, to the individual. So they need to self-isolate if they're symptomatic for 14 days. And as I said, we will get a result to them. Everybody that's in the system will be tested. That was Dr Killian de Gascon speaking this afternoon about some of the delays and unforeseen issues the HSE have been battling with in relation to public testing. In their daily evening briefing, we were also informed that a further 17 patients had sadly passed away from the virus in the past 24 hours. Many of us would have also heard speculation that out of Ireland's 71 confirmed fatalities, four of these were healthcare workers, but Dr Tony Houlihan, the Chief Medical Officer of the Department of Health, was clear in emphasising that we should not pay heed to some of the social media whispers. We haven't given that information, and I've said, I think, on a number of occasions in the past, uh, the place to go for trusted information in relation to this is not social media, it's not Twitter or tweets, we can't stand over the veracity of those. We're not going to get into the business of confirming or denying stories that appear that we haven't either seen or had time to examine. We've given out the data that we've given out. That's the data we intend to make available. And all the information that people need is available through the website of the HSE. That's the trusted source of information in relation to that. So we're not confirming that that's, that's true, that story. Uh, can I just add uh, to what Tony has said, is that, there, that since the beginning there's been a, a great deal of stories, the great majority of which have been untrue, but I, I want to emphasise how hurtful and these are to families and friends of people who are ill and unwell. And it's easy for people to put these stories on Twitter 
without, without any consideration for the impact it might have on the families or friends of people who are ill. Now for our main piece on the podcast, we want to investigate the role food can play in not only protecting our physical health, but our mental health too. We also look at the logistics that go into supplying food to members of the community who have very limited access to it. The nature of a pandemic often makes us feel that many aspects of our health and well-being are out of our own control. While some of this is true, the food we consume over the course of the crisis is something that is manageable. Sarah Kyo is the founder of eatwell.ie and has 20 years experience working in nutrition and dietetics. So in terms of nutrition and immunity, the reality is there's no food or nutrient or supplement that's actually going to boost your immune system. So when we do talk about nutrition and immunity, really what we want to think about are the foods that your immune system needs to function normally. And that's really where to focus. There's nothing you can eat that's going to stop you from getting sick. But what we can do is make sure that if you do become ill, that your body has the right nutrients so that your immune system can work at its best to fight that. The key nutrients that we would look at, there's several. Probably the most important one is actually protein. And these days we tend to think a lot about protein in terms of muscle building, you know, going to the gym, but your immune system needs protein as well. And particularly when it needs to respond to a new infection. We will already be familiar with a lot of the protein foods. These include fish, poultry, meat, beans, lentils, nuts, and eggs. You do need to have them at least twice a day. Um, I'm a fan really of having them three times a day, a little bit at breakfast, some at lunch and some at dinner. Um, you don't need huge amounts. You don't need to you know, start going out and having lots of protein shakes or anything. If you're just having the normal amounts of protein with your meals, you'll be fine. And then for dinner, if people take a look at the palm of their hand, that's about the size of meat or chicken or fish that you would need for your dinner. And that's actually plenty. You really don't need a whole lot more than that. If you're vegetarian, you do want to be thinking about three good big handfuls of beans or lentils every day in order to get all the protein that you need. The other nutrient that is extremely valuable right now is vitamin C, but Sarah is eager to point out that a balanced diet with a considered amount of fruit and veg is much more effective than overloading on vitamin C supplements. If you're getting your recommended five to seven servings of fruit and veg in every day, you're going to be covered with plenty of vitamin C. And a simple approach to that is to make sure that at least a third, if not a half of all of your meals are some sort of fruit or vegetables or salads. So if you look at having maybe a third of your breakfast is fruit, at lunchtime, maybe add in a bowl of soup or a side salad if you're having a sandwich. And then at dinner, when you look at your plate, a third to a half of your plate salad or veg. And if you're doing that, you have plenty of vitamin C coming in. One of the issues that we've seen for people who are symptomatic or people who have been confirmed to have the virus is that there is often a really, really big reduction in their appetite. If someone is finding it physically and mentally difficult to actually stomach food, what is the best way to approach it? It's a really good question and it's it's a funny one that you're asking because um, I know when I'm working as a dietitian, people think you spend your whole life working in weight loss, but actually most dietitians would spend most of their career working with people with poor appetites and trying to keep weight on. Um, I don't know if you've seen sort of on social media at the moment, um, lots of dietitians are trying to get people to return feeding pumps because um, all the patients in ICU are going to need to be tube fed over the next while. So one of the things to look at, if someone has a very poor appetite, what you want to look at is not to sort of sit down to a giant meal because it'll put you off even before you begin. So the best thing to start with is just small snacks of little things. If you're really not tasting anything at the moment, it's usually to do with loss around um, smell of all things. But what you will often find is that salt, salty taste, bitter taste, sour taste and sweet might actually still be there. They won't have the range of flavors, but they would often be the the things to look at. 
because you can't taste food, it often is very strange to have food in your mouth. So it actually makes a difference if food is very cold. So if someone is really struggling to eat and don't feel like eating and they've no taste, so very cold food, even if there's not much taste to it or you're not going to taste it tends to be easier to manage than warm or hot food without flavor so i mean often if you work with patients who are going through cancer sometimes with the treatment their lot their sense of smell or taste can go um and cold foods can actually be much easier to take drinks can be easier as well and it's a good time then to have a look at things like milky drinks milk would be a good source of protein and what you'll see a lot in the supermarkets is skimmed milk powder um, which is a very, very good source of protein, or of course, protein shakes are brilliant. So you can fortify milk by adding sort of whey powder or skimmed milk powder to them. So if someone even would drink a little bit, or if they are even having coffee, that you could make milky coffee with this fortified milk can actually be very helpful. Um, and when someone has a poor appetite, it's very important to remember that calories are essential and it's not the time to be filling them up actually with fruit and vegetables and, you know, the things that we would see as healthy eating. So when someone has a poor appetite, this is actually the time to be going with if they like sweets, if they like ice cream, if they like um, nuts, if they like seeds. So kind of higher calorie foods. And it, it sounds counterintuitive, but we'd always say healthy eating is for healthy people. And if someone is managing an illness and for, you know, a week or 10 days, they need to be eating, you know, foods that we would often think of as being less healthy, it's actually the right time to do it. And for this reason, Sarah says that for anyone who is suffering from the illness, it is vitally important to keep weight on. What we do forget is that if somebody loses a lot of weight when they're sick, it's not just that they lose, you know, maybe a flabby belly. They actually lose a lot of muscle and it's not just muscle from arms and legs. They actually lose muscle from their rib cage and their diaphragm. So even breathing can become more difficult if people become severely malnourished. So it's so important if someone is struggling in that way that they can eat whatever they fancy, whatever's high in calories, keep it cold can help. And then just small snacks regularly through the day. And if someone really is struggling um, and they are sick, try if they're in the hospital, certainly see if the hospital hospital dietitian can come and review them because they'll be able to give more detailed and individual advice for that patient. Mental health conversation has been in the forefront of much medical discussion relating to the virus in recent weeks. Our new living conditions are difficult to familiarise ourselves with, so a fluctuation in how we feel is going to be commonplace for a lot of people. To help manage this, there are certain nutrients that can substantially help improve our brain function, as Sarah explains. Probably the most important one would be omega-3s, and in particular two omega-3s called EPA and DHA. And DHA in particular is forms a large part of the structure of the brain. So if we have a look at the brain, the brain is substantially fat, but most of the fat in your brain is omega-3, and it's this particular one called DHA. DHA is particularly important during pregnancy for brain development, but we know that DHA and also EPA, so those two particular omega-3s, are important in terms of the influence they have on mood. Um, they're linked with levels of anxiety and depression when they do become very low. The best place to go for those um, omega-3s are fish, so oily fish. You're looking at things like salmon, mackerel, trout, sardines, um, and they would all be good sources. White fish wouldn't have a whole lot of omega-3. The only one that does in sort of large amounts would be sea bass, so that's a great one if you like that. It um, doesn't matter what you do to them. These can be fresh or frozen or fried or whatever you need to do to eat them. Um, and it's a good idea to try and get your oily fish in twice a week if you can. If you're really not going to eat fish, I would have a look at some of the fish oil supplements. 
Um, but just read labels carefully because, as I said, there's different kinds of omega-3 out there and the type for the brain would be EPA or DHA, whereas quite a lot of omega-3 supplements might be ALA, which is a plant-based one. And although that type of omega-3 does have benefits in the body, it doesn't have the same benefits in the brain as the fish-based omega-3. So they're ones just to take a look at. Maintaining a healthy diet is an essential part of overcoming the mental and physical effects that the COVID-19 outbreak will have on Irish citizens. But for many people around the country, access to this is not possible. They might be restricted because of the quarantine measures put in place. They could be elderly and rely on community sport, or for many their own socio-economic background prevents this. We are going to speak to two incredibly important groups that play a vital role in ensuring that nobody is left behind over the course of this pandemic. Irish Rural Link is a national organisation that represents rural communities all over Ireland and helps facilitate and structure voluntary work geared towards many of the elderly or isolated members of these communities. Seamus Boland is their CEO. One thing that happened as a result of COVID was an automatic, spontaneous gathering of rural communities, local communities, in terms of what do we need to do to protect each of us in our community, each family unit, and how do we ensure that they're not in any way forgotten. We all know we have to isolate, some more so than others, and we want to make sure that the people who are in isolation have provisions, groceries, pharmaceuticals, whatever they need, are looked after and are not forgotten. So what spontaneously started was local groups decided, let's uh, link with shops and other areas and bring the provisions to the persons if they need it. Random acts of kindness and community support are keeping many people afloat in this difficult time. But when so much is at stake currently, Seamus and Irish Rural Link recognise quite quickly the importance of creating sufficient systems to help facilitate this goodwill. Then we started bringing that process into a bit more of an organised situation so that you don't have voluntary people uh, running out of steam because this looks like it's going to last a while. And we also have some rules and, and regulations to try and make sure it's done properly and that the person who is benefiting, uh, you know, there's a certain dignity there as well. But really, um, people are being helped and people be, are being uh, assisted that probably... Uh, never realised that so much support was in their own community. You just mentioned there that obviously one of your biggest roles is to make sure that this logistically works and that the proper standards are in order. What exactly does that look like though? What is your idea of a success? Well, I think a couple of underlying principles. We developed a protocol. The first and foremost is that the the person in the household is in control. We do not want strangers rocking up to the door saying, I'm here to help you. Uh, if they don't know them, they shouldn't even open the door. A lot of people are private in their own way, so they don't need people coming up and literally throwing help at them. What they need is the choice to be able to make a phone call to the local GA secretary or IFA secretary or young group and say, look, I'm in trouble here. I, I need help. The second thing we, we've really said is that where possible, the um, householder organises payment for provisions through the normal channels with their grocers or with whoever's supplying. So they make their own arrangements so that the volunteers don't end up uh, having to, to deal with money because we don't think that's uh, right and we think it's actually something which invades people's privacy. And I suppose the main thing is that uh, community 
communities learn to know where people are, learn to know do they need help, and learn to communicate that to them in such a way that they are not imposing. Many of the services to provide meals or food are managed on a community level, but there still needs to be a high standard of professionalism attached to these projects, particularly when the public's health and safety is paramount. It's managed by and large by effectively local community groups in their own way. Now, some are doing it in a more organised way. They do it all year round. They set up a local grouping. They might have rural social scheme participants or they might have FDS scheme or they might have just a dedicated list of volunteers. And they've established a proper channel in terms of kitchens, etc. And they do it in a, in a way that they make sure that the person's dietary needs are understood. Uh, and otherwise you can't provide meals if they if they if they do the opposite, make people ill because they have the wrong allergies. So they do it very well. And then you have voluntary people who do it uh, the same way. They're every bit as professional, but they may not do it on a long-term basis. But they're managed by and large by local development associations who provide or get access to kitchens, whether it's in local hotels, in local halls, etc. Uh, and as I said, a lot of them are funded through the HSE Section 39 fund. Uh, so that's their that's the way they're managed. But obviously Irish Rural Link have been calling over the years for a much more tighter system for this and maybe this crisis will show why there is such a need for this and hopefully that will improve it that'll be a legacy afterwards when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mary Gamble is the director of fundraising for Bernardo's, who do genuinely incredible work helping many disadvantaged children and families in the heart of local communities. Bernardo's would have worked with children um, all across the country. I mean, we actually have 40 projects across the country. And one of the main types of services that we provide vulnerable children and families is our breakfast clubs and our after-school clubs where the children would get a warm, nutritious meal every day. So the logistics of that, you know, 10 days ago, actually having to having to think about, wow, how are we going to turn this service literally around? We knew that not providing food was was not an option we, we knew that that was never on the table there was we always had to figure out a way where we could get the food to the kids so um we were, we were just really scrambling at the beginning thinking my god how are we going to actually do this so what we've come up with is our cooks and our bus drivers are now sort of making up food parcels and doing door drops 
So what it's actually meant is that instead of actually feeding one child where they come in and have their breakfast or they have dinner after school, we're actually feeding a whole family now, really. So it's been a frantic scramble just trying to get boxes filled up with, you know, cereals, fruits, all the bits and pieces that you'd need just for the week and just trying to get them out to as many families that we work with as possible. There have been a huge amount of challenges because of the outbreak, in particular with sourcing food for these schemes. Because we would normally get our food um, donated to us by companies like Food Cloud and various different supermarkets, but because people have been stockpiling and panic buying, there is no food through these usual channels. They've all dried up. So we found ourselves, and I took a call last week from um, one of our project leaders in Tala, saying to me, you know, Mary, we have no food left in our cupboards to give. And I can honestly tell you, I have never felt so helpless in my life when we're normally the ones, you know, where we would be coming in and we'd be dishing out formula for babies and nappies and all the bits and pieces. And we had nothing left to give at one point last week. And you just feel like shouting from the rooftops, you know, that that we've never needed help like this before, Mm. ever. We've never had to go out in such a desperate fashion where we're scrambling to try and get some food that we can we can give to the kids and we know there is kids out there that rely on Bernardo's to get food they rely on us to come in and have that warm place and the safe place they know they're going to get a dinner that's got veg and meat and everything that they need on it and they just don't have that now the challenges Bernardo's have faced have also left the organisation and its members hopeful because of some of the innovation and public generosity they've witnessed. It's also been a, a really inspiring week because watching the frontline staff coming up with solutions and figuring out ways to deal with this has been really amazing to watch. And I've never, ever been as proud to work for an organisation as I have actually in the last two weeks because any barrier that's come across, us, it's been knocked over and we found a way through it. It's been amazing, I have to say. Traditionally, Bernardo's work with kids and families through their centres or through schools themselves. But their new way of operating during the crisis allows them to still maintain a personal relationship with the children. It's been interesting in the way that we've kind of done this now. So when we're doing the door drops and dropping off the food parcels, that's enabled our staff to kind of get eyes on each child. Mm. So that we can see the child, we can see the sort of environment, the atmosphere in the home, because a lot of kids we work with would be in homes that are quite chaotic and there would be very serious issues like um, parental mental health difficulties. There could be addiction issues, very often cases of domestic violence. So that pressure cooker environment, which is now exacerbated because we're all stuck, you know, in within these four walls it's crucial that we have that eyes on contact, even though we're not, you know, obviously we're keeping the social distancing thing going, but we have to be able to see them and the kids have to be able to see us. They have to know that we are still there, even though they're not coming into the centres and they're not doing their usual stuff, we're still there. And then what the staff are doing then are going back into the cars and actually doing um, the support work through FaceTime or through, um, you know, other apps. So we're still communicating and still um, connecting with the kids, but Mm. we're doing it through technology. And Mary, it's no secret, obviously, that we haven't seen the worst of the crisis so far. What are your biggest concerns for the charity in the medium to long term? The crisis for us actually is deepening by the day. I suppose I'll take it from two points of view, from from a fundraising point of view, we're cancelling events you know obviously things can't go on and I'm sitting there watching our income drop by the day we normally have to raise about eight million euros a year just to to keep that gap in funding so to keep the doors open to keep everything going 
And I can see that's probably going to be affected by about a million euros, I would Mm. expect, by the end of the year. So that's got to be found somewhere. But at the moment, I'm still trying to think, actually, right, that's a crisis that I'm going to try and handle next week or the week after. At the moment, I still don't have enough food to give the kids. I still don't have enough uh, nappies and formula, money for things like that. And where people are normally so generous at donating stuff, we can't take goods anymore because of risk of contamination and stuff. So all donations have to be done through the website. So that's a challenge. But then also, we're looking at the challenges that the children are facing and Everything has to start from the children. I mean, Bernardo's is an organisation that, you know, um, we're all about children. And the, I suppose the impact that this is going to have on them, we won't really know um, for a while yet. But we know that we are seeing, you know, families that are highly stressed. Um, but we're finding with the kids that we work with, those really vulnerable children, the impact on them is going to be long lasting. And we have to make sure that we are there for them as much as they need us. But we would imagine they're going to get more and more reliant on us um, over the next weeks and months. That was episode 12 of Viral COVID-19. If you are in need of help from Bernardo's or would like to also make a donation, you can contact them on 1850-222-300 or visit bernardos.ie where you can find more information on some of the incredible services they offer. I would like to thank Mary Gamble, Sarah Kyo and Seamus Boland for joining me on the podcast today. Following on from Monday's episode on housing in Ireland, on Friday we will be speaking to Ono Breen, who is Sinn Féin's housing spokesman, on what needs to be done to make sure Ireland's homeless population are not left behind in this pandemic. I'm Ian Doyle, I'll talk to you then. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.